This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Game theory, which is an important part of economics, was made famous in part uh, by the 2001 movie A Beautiful Mind. Well, it has seen one of its most well-known contributors pass away, John Forbes Nash Jr., who was the basis for the Russell Crowe character in the film, died Saturday in a car crash in New Jersey, along with his wife. Nash won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1994 and is considered one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century. The film also highlighted his longtime battle with paranoid schizophrenia. To back uh, to take a look back at his life and his contributions to economics, we are joined on the phone by Wharton Professor Keith Weigelt, as well as here in the studio, Lewis Thomas, who's an associate professor in the management department here at Wharton. Uh, professor Weigelt, great to have you on the phone today. Thanks very much for calling us. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Great. Professor Thomas, great to have you here as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Keith, we'll start with you. I mean, uh, the the basis behind game theory in, in what I was reading about it, and obviously it, it seen the movie, was was uh, how to win at life when you don't necessarily know what all of the things are that are going around you. So how did that, in some respects, play out in the economic world, thanks in part to what uh, what Mr. Nash was able to bring forth? Yeah, well, it's just a uh, basically game theory looks at what Byer calls strategic decisions, and from a cognitive uh, standpoint, uh, these are different in the sense that to uh, determine an optimal uh, strategy, you must anticipate the behavior of, of others, and so it was the idea of how can we anticipate the behavior of others so we can make our optimal strategy. The idea has been around for a long time, but it wasn't until a game theorist, you know, tried to formalize this, uh, you know, in the 1950s and, and so forth, uh, that, you know, we saw some uh, progress. And uh, before John Nash, uh, games were uh, solved when, when you had a, a dominant strategy, which means that you really don't care what others are doing because you have a strategy which works the best against anything that uh, they do. So in, an example of uh, a dominant strategy, at least to uh, Tennyson, was it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. One of the classic we, scenes in the, in the movie that sort of summarizes it is uh, they're all at a, at a bar, and they're trying to uh, meet a, a blonde. There's a blonde woman who they're all after to try to date, I guess. And uh, Russell Crowe, the character who plays John Nash, uh, points out that uh, if they all act on their own, uh, they'll not get the blonde. Uh, so that's, that's, one of the, that's how economics was at the time. He then realizes that they recognize their mutual uh, payoffs are together or independent, that if one maybe goes for the blonde and others go for someone else, they have a better chance of getting the blonde. So therefore, the outcome of that game, that is getting the blonde, so to speak, depends upon not only what each of them does separately, but what they do, uh, how they recognize each other's strategies. So the notion of game theory that brought to economics is that what you get or your payoff in a setting depends upon what others get. And so this is actually revolutionary in economics at the time. 
because it's all predicated upon the idea that everyone acting on their own would somehow make everyone better off. So it was a departure from the uh, established thinking at the time. And and to uh, to uh, put this forth again, uh, that game theory was around for quite some time prior to what Nash. Uh, had really pushed forward. Uh, I guess uh, in some of the uh, doing some of the reading about this, uh, one of the gentlemen at the forefront of this was John von Neumann, uh, who really pushed forward the, the theory of game theory uh, back in the early days. Correct? True. Very right. true. But again, until John Nash came along, you could only solve game theory if you had a, a dominant strategy, which means you don't care what the other person does. What John Nash did, again, and think of it this way, right? We're all sitting around saying, well, what should I do? Well, that depends on what I think others are doing. And everyone's sitting around saying that. Now, if we're going to correctly anticipate the future, we have to have a common vision of what that future is. And John Nash basically supplied the a common vision of what the future is when he basically said, well, we're going to do as well as we can, expecting that others are going to do as well as they can, knowing that we're doing the same thing. So everyone sitting there, now our common vision is, we should do as well as we can, expecting the others to do the same. And this allowed us to solve so many more uh, you know, games, because now we didn't have to have a dominant you know, solution. We could have this Nash common vision of what the future looks like. So then in many respects, what, what Nash was able to do really modernized the, the, the original theories of von Neumann and made them obviously more applicable for, uh, for the modern, uh, modern society and, and the business world that we see out there today, correct? Keith? True, because, because you could uh, you know, take game theory and now use it across a wider range of games because now we didn't have to have this very restrictive assumption of domination. Exactly. Keith, I know you have to take off, but thank you very much for giving us a few minutes today. You're welcome. Great. Thanks very much. We continue on with, with Lewis Thomas. And I guess playing off of that, when we think about economics in the business world today, we I think we have certain core beliefs as to how everything has, has worked. This is, in respect, his life is a real history lesson on a lot of the basic theories that, that we still use today. Oh, yes. I mean, you think about how his, uh, his work has affected so many different fields, not only just economics, but business strategy and just sort of life decisions in general. If you look at the field of economics, every major field and every subfield of economics has been impacted by what, uh, what uh, was his work. Uh, let's like, uh, look at finance. We used to think about finance, the financial markets, uh, how will prices determine or equity prices determine markets. Well, there's a lot of thinking now about uh, herd behavior. That comes a lot from a lot of work that he did. Labor economics, again, the idea of how, how your wages are determined, how should uh, determine my strategy in the workplace, again, affected by him. And uh, business and strategy, the, where, the area where I am, there's a b- profound impact. How do you think about pricing strategy? Yeah. How do I think about organizing my firm? How do I think about entering markets? How do I think about uh, setting prices? How do I think about innovation? All these have been impacted by the work that uh, he did. Even outside of that, political science, the, the Pentagon or military institutions have used uh, his work to think about how to deal with the Islamic group uh, or this so-called uh, Islamic State. So it's actually a profound impact across multiple fields. And I don't think there are very few people who have had such a profound impact on how we make decisions across so many different areas. It, it is amazing because you, if you think about it, I, I guess in some respects we would have 
somebody would have come across this this theory at some point but the fact that nash did it obviously uh it it has well if you're talking about the mid 50s you're talking about 60 years uh, of how things could have been much different right. without nash's work oh, oh definitely i mean think about this it occurred a, a long time well not a long time ago but as you said 60 years ago and it's taken a while for it to actually spread across these fields so yeah. um i think a lot of the research a lot of the ways we think about things profoundly different uh, if it had occurred earlier or had been in, in, put in these fields much earlier than it actually did. Uh, one of the things I do with my students is uh, show them not only is this good for uh, making decisions about you know, their, their um, uh, classwork, but just making decisions about things in general, what yeah. job to take, uh, how to handle their marriages, how to handle their relationships. Almost everything that one can think of has anything to do with interaction or relationships is profoundly impacted upon the work that John Nash did. And it's actually it's a shame in some sense because until that movie came along, I think very few people understood who he was and yeah. what a big impact he's had. But the Nobel Prize and obviously the movies had a big impact. But still, there are lots of people who don't understand their everyday life decisions. What they do every day in some ways have been impacted by what he actually did. And I guess in some respects, as you mentioned, there are, it has taken a while for it to apply itself in a lot of different areas. And I'm guessing that maybe there are still some areas where it could be applied and, and, and it could be advanced further. Oh, sure. Man. One of the reasons that slowed its advance or the advance of thinking is that obviously there are existing ways of understanding some of these ideas. Yeah. And always in, in academics, there's always tension between an old way of doing something and a new, new approach sure. that slowed it down as well. But just getting in outside of the uh, academic realm, I mean, one of the roles of uh, this is in, in business schools are teaching in MBA programs is this is actually making impact outside of normal academics, yeah. uh, and that's beginning to happen uh, as well. So I think uh, the way you know managers make decisions, um, uh, the way again I mentioned before, the way people make decisions about life decisions, uh, all this is going to be profoundly impacted. Uh, I think by the work that he did, uh, I was sort of joked to my students, you'd come up with a book for, uh, called Dr. Phil of Game Theory in some sense <laughs> of, of how to make better decisions in life. Uh, if you look at the work of Malcolm Gladwell, again, there's a lot of attention being paid these days to try to understand how to make better decisions when there's mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainty. His work talks deals directly with that, and I think it's beginning to have that sort of impact as well. And, and I guess one of the areas that he also looked into uh, was – uh, you talked about the interaction w with with other people and in the business setting, but he also, I guess, looked into people's interaction with how they react to money, uh, which is something that obviously, when you're talking about, you know, people have different reactions to to various things, but money is something that that specifically is something that can change your view on a lot of different things if you have more of it than somebody else. Well, sure, even how the notion of how you invest, right? Yeah. Uh, that is, it should I invest? Uh, you know, basically, uh, one notion is uh, you can think about uh, investing in sort of a repeated game in, in his language, right? So um, do I invest a lot today or do I save? So you can think about people's what is called an intertemporal discount rate and how, they, how it affects their decisions to make, uh, not decisions about money, but decisions about investing, about mortgages. Uh, about anything that has to do with any type of financial instrument. And this guy can be very useful to uh, money managers. That is, when you deal with a person, you're uh, dealing with a person making investment decisions, one thing you may want to know about them is how much, how do they, how do they think about savings? How do they think about investing? Because this will actually affect how they make those decisions. Yeah. Uh, so that is, any in, in a situation where I've got to interact with someone and make decisions about how I should make interact, game theory and the work that John Nash has done will have a profound impact. 
And I think it's beginning to spill out outside of the normal academic realm into just everyday decision making. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's starting to happen, I think. Uh, we're joined by uh, Lewis Thomas, who's an associate professor in the management department here at the Wharton School. We're talking about the life of uh, John Forbes Nash, uh, who was the basis behind the movie A Beautiful Mind. Uh, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you have a, a comment or a question, you're more than welcome to, to join in uh, the conversation if you would like. Uh, I guess in some respects then, uh, with where we are with economics and business and the fact that there are so many people that are basically following uh, the philosophies that, that that Nash kind of broke down in the 50s, that there probably are some people that are working in the economic world and that are maybe millennials that maybe don't even realize the, they may have a cursory background of it, but they really don't realize that it was Nash that really put forward a lot of these theories back in the 1950s. Well, listen, the, uh, and the, you know, both in the univers- uh, undergraduate programs and, and obviously MBA programs, it's standard now for a, a whole course to be given on game theory yeah. or for, at the very least, a module of the standard microeconomics course to be given. So what you're starting to see is these millennials are now arriving in the workplace. They all have a basic understanding of game theory. They at least have seen it. They know what a Nash equilibrium is. They can probably yeah. tell you. It's actually becoming a standard toolkit from anyone, certainly from a top MBA program, and arguably from any top uh, undergraduate program uh, and period. So again, I think this is one of these things that will take a little bit of time because the idea is a, a little bit complex. But again, it's, it's more, you're starting to see more and more of anyone's graduating from a top program anywhere will understand these ideas. That means they're starting to go into places like policy uh, places, uh, making public policy decisions. They're starting to make decisions about management and strategy, all using these tools. So again, the impact that John Nash has is actually yet to come in some sense because more and more people are being trained in this. They're going to go out through the world and utilize these tools and actually spread the, the use even further, I think. Again, we are joined by Lewis Thomas, who is an associate professor in the management department here at the Wharton School. We're talking about the life of uh, John Forbes Nash, uh, who uh, many of you, if you saw the movie back in 2001, A Beautiful Mind, uh, you know that uh, the, the role that uh, Russell Crowe played in that movie was basically based on the life of John Forbes Nash. And I guess then from that perspective, how in, in seeing the movie, how close do you think from everything you've learned about the actual person, John Forbes Nash, how close was the portrayal that, that Crowe did to the actual person? I mean, Hollywood tends to, you know, to deflect certain aspects of stories, right. you know, to begin with. I, again, I, I go back to the, the the blonde scene that I mentioned to you uh, earlier, uh, and uh, it turns out the 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 Nash equilibrium that you describe in that scene isn't exactly right. But right. you can imagine the Hollywood writers decided to make it a little bit more interesting sure. uh, than it than it had to be. I think there are aspects of his life that weren't dealt with explicitly, uh, for I can imagine all sorts of different reasons, but. Um, it is certainly true that uh, his, uh, uh, his difficulties and mental health issues um, yeah. uh, were dealt with, I think. I think the movie is mainly about how he dealt with that issue and how his wife helped him deal with that issue. Yeah. And it was, it was a very, in some ways, a very, very sad story, but a very loving story at the end. So I think that was the main thrust of it. Uh, and doing so, obviously, different aspects of game theory or other aspects of his life were left out. Uh, but I, I'm not sure it was if you were writing, a, certainly a, a, a 
a print version of that would be very, very different, I, I, I think, than the Hollywood version. Uh, but uh, they did, a, I think, uh, from what I recall anyway, it was a while ago now, it was a very, very uh, more authentic than I would expect it to have been. So uh, one of the few instances where Hollywood actually gave us something that was both entertaining yeah. and, and arguably authentic as well. Uh, if you go back to the basics, uh, the basis of, of game theory, when Von Neumann was was bringing this forward, his philosophy how how different is it from what Nash eventually pushed forward? I mean, there's obviously Nash was working off of the basics that Von Neumann had brought forth, but but how different is it? Well, okay, I think it's uh, my colleague was, was suggested to you earlier. Uh, what limited the use of game theory at one point from von Neumann is that it only characterized a particular type of outcome of a game. Huh. What uh, Keith earlier was such thing was a dominant strategy. Yeah. That was the only tool that was available. The problem is, if you look out there in the, in the world, there aren't that many dominant strategies, yeah. right? So therefore, it limited the applicability of using this tool if you only had dominant strategies. What um, Nash brought in the idea was that you could actually have something called a stable outcome of a game. You can think about it this way. And Nash equilibrium essentially says that uh, no player has any incentive to change a strategy given what the other players are doing. Right. This makes a much uh, larger set of possible outcomes that we can understand other than simply a dominant strategy. So, so I think in that regard, uh, it allowed uh, game theory to be applied and, and management strategy and political science, finance, labor, all the fields that it subsequently has come to encounter. What's interesting about it, and from my viewpoint, is that whenever game theory has entered one of these fields, it's come to dominate it. Yeah. And my background is in an area called industrial organization economics. Yeah. Before, uh, before uh, this game theory stuff came along, it was largely looking at statistics about industry structure. Today, it's all about game theory. Essentially, applied I.O. is essentially is game theory. Yeah. Um, the same thing has actually happened in a number of different fields in economics. Uh, there's some of this happening in management strategy. Uh, so, as you were suggesting earlier, a lot of the impact of what he has done is yet to be realized, I yeah. think, in lots of different ways. But, yeah, the main difference is the Nash equilibrium is a much, um, I guess, broader uh, outset of outcomes than certainly what von Neumann would describe. Yeah, I was going to say, if, 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 to go back and, and talk about the Nash equilibrium, because that is really the, the biggest difference between what von Neumann uh, was pushing forward and, and what Nash basically brought forth as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, again, if you just think about it as von Neumann, it's just a dominant strategy, right? So we're looking for the possibility that irrespective of what you choose, yeah. I will always choose a particular outcome or strategy. Yeah. That, that's interesting, and I made a big impact, but it doesn't allow me to characterize lots of things that we're interested in a day-to-day -day basis. So let's say I'm a manager, and I want to think about my pricing strategy. Yeah. Well, my price probably depends upon what you're going to do, my rival, let's say, in terms of your price. Sure, yeah. So therefore, I don't have a dominant strategy. Uh, I may have a strategy, have a Nash equilibrium strategy that says, my best guess as to what you're likely to do, this is what I'm going to choose, price high or price low. Yeah. So on a, on a, it would make any sense, for example, for me to always price high or to yeah. always price low, because then you, my rival, would take advantage of that, no doubt. Sure. So therefore, I can't use a simple notion what Von Neumann is describing as a dominant strategy to think about pricing sure. or to think about market entry or lots of things that managers actually care about. So I think the work that John Nash did in this idea of a Nash equilibrium allows the supply to those these ideas to a much richer and broader set 
of management or strategic outcomes that previously weren't available to us. So it really broadened the uh, the uh, outcomes or possible things that we could look at. So then uh, the the effect that it has had on management and the structure of companies is that maybe the most important area for the the movement forward of Nash's work in terms of if you're changing the philosophy of how businesses believe they need to be run that 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 perception of having that uh, that that dominant strategy or or not dominant strategy then that ends up being an effect on a variety of different things, as you said, pricing down the road. So is management and that area maybe the most important area for Nash's work going forward, even from, from now after his death? I think it's, it's a very rich area that uh, has lots of opportunity for applying its ideas. I mean, we an area is called competitive strategy, for example. We used to have these ideas of just looking at market structure, you know, this yeah. idea of Porter's Five Forces, and we really didn't have much beyond that. I think what this offers us is an opportunity to look at competitive strategy and a much uh, richer detail. So we can look at pricing. We can look at things like organizational design. Yeah. We can look at things like market entry, decisions to invest in R&D. We can look at things like corporate culture. We can look at things like leadership. All these things that before we really couldn't look at in a systematic way. Game yeah. theory has yet to make a big impact per se in those areas, but it, I think it's poised to do exactly that. I mean, just look at... Um, Leadership is one of the biggest ideas right now in management, uh, and yet it's not, you know, game theory allows you to look at it in a slightly different way yeah. that makes you think about things. Of how does a leader credibly commit himself such that uh, followers will actually follow him? Or do, yeah. do, you, do you commit on, on values? Do you commit on policies and things like that? So this actually allows us to uh, think about leadership, organizational design, organizational culture, all things at the very, very heart of management. Yeah. Not necessarily in a way that um, is different than what's out there, but sort of complements some of the existing understanding that we have out there. So almost anyone who's graduated with an MBA or a degree from a top business school like Wharton in the last several years will now be exposed to these ideas, and you're going to start seeing them increasingly out there. And I think it will change the way managers think about some very core uh, management ideas and strategies. One of the other things I, I read that the, that was also in play here was the concept of of the free market economy. And the fact that, I guess, back in that time in the 50s and maybe the early 60s, there was that that fight against, and part of this went into his battle with schizophrenia, in that he was in belief that you know there were quite a few uh, more communists all around him. You know, one article I read said anywhere anybody wearing a red tie, he believed to be a communist, which you know it goes into his, his medical issues. Uh, but really, the the works of Nash really proved that the free market economy. Uh, really was the stronger, the strongest option out there for a variety of different countries, and not that communist belief of of how to run an economy. Also, I mean, part of this look uh, again would depend upon the, the context in those times, right? Yeah. So we're talking about the 1950s yeah. and McCarthyism and the like. Yeah. Uh, but one of the ways I think uh, that he rationalized uh, out out of some of the some of that thinking was his own thinking, right? That will be the best way of getting a uh, you know sort of. Um, a uh, large amount of wealth spread, a large amount of wealth generally created yep. would not just be this idea that um, uh, every actor acting individually to maximize his own utility, but it turns out, in addition to that, each person recognizing 
the good for themselves and mm-hmm. the good of others that actually result in a higher sort of um, economic output or, yeah. or social utility than, than anything else. I'm sure he was able to rationalize to himself his own thinking uh, that clearly having a, a dominant uh, you know, planner or whatever, whatever you want to term it, uh, would actually lead to lower wealth for everyone. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the story about the ties, I'm not sure how he uh, <laughs> would rationalize the tie, but certainly he would yeah. not understand the idea of, uh, of a free market economy. So in the day's environment, I, I would imagine he easily would have been someone as a proponent of, of open and free markets, for example. Yeah, I, and I guess that, as is the case with, with many great uh, thinkers, philosophers, uh, is the case that even though his uh, work has been out there for you know, 50, 60 years, whatever it is at this point, that really, as you were just saying, because of the fact that it is such an important part of the business school culture these days, that really the true influence of what Nash worked on back in the 1950s and 1960s, we're going to see play out now over the next 30, 40 years rather than what we've seen over the prior 30, 40 years. Yeah, you just think about the the uh, the, the lag time in academic ideas, right? Someone thinks of it, well, you know, they're in grad school, right, or yeah. someplace like that. They then start teaching to students. This is usually a 20, 40-year lag at the very least, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. Someone's now got to go to a top business school to expose to this, and then they have to get promoted and, and make their way through the corporate hierarchy yeah. to really start using it. So it takes a while for that to happen. I mean, think about Adam Smith. When was that? Uh, 1800 sometime. Sure, yeah. Now, you know, did not really uh, revolutionize uh, thinking until the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, so it was 100 years later. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it'll take some time, but uh, increasingly, I'm always amazed by uh, I, I used to, when I started teaching these sort of courses, uh, I would, uh, it was, I was, had trouble running to undergraduates coming coming to Wharton from the undergraduate programs who have had this. Now it's routine. Yeah. Uh, who, they, I remember Nash Equilibrium from, my, from <laughs> my, uh, you know, my junior year or sophomore year in college, right? Yeah, yeah. That sounds standard. Yeah. Uh, so that allows you to do a lot more in the classroom, uh, uh, certainly in the MBA program, than you certainly could have done before. So yeah, I think the impact of this is about to happen. And unfortunately, as is usually the case, someone passes away, yeah. uh, and then the impact of the work becomes becomes, uh, becomes well-known. But that, that's going to happen, I think. Thank you very much for coming in. I'm glad to, glad to have you. Thank Great you. to have you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.